Good morning. Actually, I'm going to encourage you to, to sit. And the reason I'm going to do this is because I'm going to read an abbreviated, abbreviated uh, passage from the message. And I'm going to encourage you just to listen, just to receive what God's Word wants to share with you this morning. And we can do that better sometimes in a posture that just closes our eyes and listens. So I'm going to encourage you to do that, but perhaps read the same passage a little bit later today or later this week. I'm reading from Acts 19, 23 to 41 in the message. Before Paul got away, a huge ruckus occurred over what was now being referred to as the way. A certain silversmith, Demetrius, had a business manufacturing shrines to the goddess Artemis, which employed a number of artisans. He brought together his workers and said this, Men, you well know that we have a good thing going here, and you've seen how Paul has barged in and discredited what we are doing by telling people that there's no such thing as a God made with hands. A lot of people are going along with him, not only here in Ephesus, but all through Asia province. Our little business is in danger of falling apart and the temple of our famous goddess Artemis will certainly end up in a pile of rubble as our glorious reputation fades to nothing. And this is no mere local matter. The whole world worships our Artemis. That set off a frenzy. They ran into the street yelling, Great Artemis of the Ephesians! Great Artemis of the Ephesians! They put the whole city in an uproar, stampeding into the stadium and grabbing two of Paul's associates on the way. Paul wanted to go in, but the disciples wouldn't let him. And prominent religious leaders in the city who liked Paul concurred, by no means go near that mob. Some were yelling one thing, some another. Most of them had no idea what was going on or even why they were there. And as the Jews pushed Alexander to the front to try to gain control, different factions clamored to get him on their side. But he brushed them off and quieted the mob. But the moment he opened his mouth, they knew he was a Jew. And they shouted him down, Great Artemis of the Ephesians! Great Artemis of the Ephesians! And on and on and on for two hours. Finally, the clerk got the mob quieted down and said, fellow citizens, is there anyone anywhere who doesn't know that our dear city Ephesus is protector of glorious Artemis and her sacred stone image that fell straight out of heaven? Since this is beyond contradiction, you'd better get hold of yourselves. This is conduct unworthy of Artemis. These men you've dragged in here have done nothing to harm either our temper, temple or our goddess. So if Demetrius and his guild of artisans have a complaint, they can take it to court and make all the accusations they want. If anything else is bothering you, bring it to the town meeting and let it be settled there. There's no excuse for what's happened today. We're putting our city in serious danger. Rome, remember, does not look kindly on rioters. And with that, 
he sent them home. Well, I want to share with you three mini vignettes. Three stories that are they're all true. And the first one comes from the world of sports. Another one has a personal connection to me in that I I know the person. And the third one is somebody that you know. Or at least somebody that you know of because she comes from the world of entertainment in the industry of of music. So three accounts, they're all true. And what I'd like to encourage you to do is to see if you can see if there is some sort of a common thread throughout all three or something that it all points to. Okay? That's where we're going. A few years ago, it was, um, at least it became quite public that there were some players within Major League Baseball who, understandably, they had natural talent, but they were determined to not just play well, but play at a Hall of Fame level. And so they decided to take some performance-enhancing drugs or steroids. They were driven by this this laser-like focus to not just be good players, but but great players. Even though it meant putting substances into their body that people know is not to be part of the game. And so the very things that these players had kind of hung their happiness on, ended up turning to dust in their own hands. Because it was those very things that they had placed their happiness upon, but that in the end, they did not deliver. The second story involves a a friend of mine who, like any good dad and a good husband, wanted to provide for his family and give them some of the best things in in life. But in his quest for that, at some point, he started going to the casino. And one of the worst things that ever happened to him was that he won $110,000. Because after that, going forward, he thought that his number was going to come up again. And so he would go back to the casino time and time again, handing over money after money after money, money that he really couldn't afford to part with. And it meant 
that was really going to become hard on his family and his marriage. I remember, I remember going with a mutual friend of ours, and his wife had said, oh, you'll find him over at the craps table. And so we went there one night, and sure enough, there he was. He, and I'll never forget, I'll never forget the face that he had, you know, rolling the dice. It was like this really intense, desperate look. And when he spotted us, he came over and he, and he came with us. And afterwards, as part of the conversation, I said, you know what, I, I don't know if your wife is going to let you back in the house. But fast forward and they had worked things through and, and they are still together. But in his, in his focus, he had turned a good thing, money, into a supreme thing even at the possible cost of his marriage and the pursuit of that money. The third story involves a person, as I say, that, uh, that you know, and it involves the, the pop artist Madonna. Listen to these words. These, these are her own words describing the seduction of success. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended. And it probably never will. For Madonna, it wasn't the experience of joy that was the driving force behind her. It was, it was fear. It was fear that she wasn't going to be somebody. A somebody that she had sell herself, the, su the success that she has experienced. It was that fear that could only be attained by achieving some sort of level of success for her sense of self-worth. So okay now. What perhaps is the, maybe the common thread? between those three accounts, those three stories. There is something other than the one true God that is the God of their lives. Something other than the God that we know that they have actually put their, their God is, as being as something else. In the first case, it was fame. In the second, it was what? It was money. In the third, it was... It was success. They were, they were driven by these other forces in their lives. And we'll come back to that in a second. The book of Acts that we are currently looking at in our summer series that we've been in in the last, whatever it is, I think maybe five or six weeks now that we've been in the book of Acts, it's filled with many vivid descriptions of the cultures of the Greek-Roman cities at that time. And many of those cities 
had worshipped their, their favorite deities and had actually built shrines around their images. Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. Ares, the god of war. Apollos, the god of music and art. Artemis, the goddess of fertility and, and wealth. And what's important to understand about these gods is that they can have powerful influence in human lives. I mean, listen to this. Listen to this from Acts 19. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen. And he said to these craftsmen, he said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see in here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus talking about, talking about Jesus and talking about the way. And in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that God's made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. Such gods are, are powerful in a sense, as they are here. I mean, craftsmen, earning a good, earning a good living from building these shrines of Artemis. They were in danger of losing their business. You try taking away something from somebody that is their ultimate thing, their, their hope and their security, you try taking that away from them and they will go ballistic. They will be fired up, just as what you heard in Mary Elsie when she read that entire passage, you know, from, from Acts 19. Small g gods are powerful, or they can be. And in our earlier stories that we talked about, the God of fame was powerful in, in some players, some baseball players' lives, even to the point where they were actually willing to lie and cheat about it in their pursuit of it. My friend's God is God of money. And actually, you know what? In my friend's God of God of money, it made way for his fixation and an addiction to gambling even at the possible cost of his own marriage. Madonna's God, Madonna's God of success. Her God of success led her to be driven by fear because it was success that she thought was actually going to give her a sense of self-worth. Such gods are powerful. They're empty, but they're powerful. They're empty because they don't end up giving you what they say that they're actually going to give you. They're empty. The pursuit of fame at all costs left baseball players with dust in their hands and tarnished reputations. The God of, of money for my friend, it really didn't provide him with actually much satisfaction in the end. Even with him when he won a large sum amount of it. Madonna and her God of success, it still left her with feelings of inadequacy and mediocrity. Things that she just couldn't overcome, even with the success that she had achieved. 
Such gods are powerful, but they're empty. They're empty. And when the Apostle Paul, when he went to the city of, of Athens, you know, the city where things were happening, this is, this is where everything was kind of happening in the culture, you know, bada boom, bada boom, you know. This is where it was to be. This, this was the place to be. It says this, you know, after his arrival, it says this. It says, while Paul was waiting for them, so that's for Silas and Timothy, because they were yet to arrive in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Everywhere he went, everywhere he turned, he saw idols. Not necessarily in the form of, of shrines, not necessarily in the form of statues, but in everything that was kind of underneath everything. Most people, when they think of idols, they think about you know, who the next performing artist is that is going to be anointed by, what's her names? I don't know, Luke Bryan and Katie, Katie Perry and Lionel Richie. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. He's not thinking, but what is he thinking of? What, what, what is an idol? What's an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than God. It's anything that, that captures your heart and your imagination more than God. It's anything that you seek will give you that only God can give. That's what an idol is. And it can have such a grip on your life. It can have such a, a grip on your heart that most of your passion and your energy, your emotional and financial sources, can kind of go on just without even kind of a, a second thought. Any, anything in life can be, can be an idol. Anything in life. It can be family and children. It can be a career or a career and making money. It can be achievement or hanging out in certain social circles. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competency or skill, your brains or your beauty, secure circumstances, comfortable circumstances, a social cause, or get this, even success in ministry. Even success in ministry. Anything in life can serve as an idol. Anything. And there are things that lead us to think that they promise us security and, and peace and, and happiness. If only we would base our lives on them. If only we would do that, just base our lives on them. An idol is, is whatever you look at and you, you say in your heart of hearts, if I can have that, then, then I will feel that my life has meaning. Then I'll be happy. My identity is wrapped in it. My hope, my hope lies in it. There are many ways to describe that kind of a relationship with something. But perhaps maybe the best is, is the word worship. It's worship. Everybody, everybody worships something. But anything that becomes 
more central than God to your happiness, your meaning in life, your hope and identity, then it is an idol. It's an idol. People, people often think that, that idols are bad things, and they almost never are. It's taking good things and making them the best things. It's taking good things and making them supreme things. It's taking good things and, and making them ultimate things. And it says here in Acts 17 that Paul, when he looked around the city of, of Athens, what did it say? It says he, came, he became, he was distressed because he saw that it was filled with idols, with idolatry. Paul, Paul's heart was shaped by God's heart. And he knows, and he knew that, that our hearts are, can be like an idol factory. The, greatest, the greater we see something as good, the more likely it is. The, we, we expect it to actually satisfy our own deepest desires and hopes. But it can't. It always fails to give what it says it's going to give you. And Paul knew that. He knew that. He was distressed. Paul knew the heart of God. He knew what was true of God. And he had an intimate relationship, an intimate fellowship with him. He also was very well versed in the Torah in the Old Testament, including the Ten Commandments. What's, what's the very first commandment of the Bible? Do you know? Do you remember? What's the very first commandment? That was almost in unison, but it, was, it kind of sounded like mumble up here. I, I don't know. I think he said this. I think he said this. He said, I am the Lord your God. You must have no other God but me. If somebody asked you, what do, what do you mean, no other gods? You could point them to the very next two verses in this passage. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. Do you know, do you know what the next six or seven or eight words are? Right after that, do you know what they are? Here they are. For he says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. People often react to this idea that God is a jealous God. Because when we think of jealousy, we have a tendency to think that, you know, the kind of jealousy that says, you know what, you have something that I want. That's what we tend to think. But there's a healthy jealousy. There's a pure jealousy. Because the idea of a jealous God, at least, you know, when it comes to love, when it comes to that, when it comes to love, it's not just, it's not just sweet feelings. Because when you love somebody and you see them going down the wrong path, or you see somebody making kind of wrong choices, 
When you, when you love somebody and, and you see them doing those kinds of things, yes, there's a sweetness. Yes, there's a sweetness about you. You love them. You mean you're melted by that. But you can also have feelings of indignation at times. You, you, can, you can get distressed. You, when you watch them do that, you, you're bothered by it. You, you, can, you can get mad, right? If, if you love children, if you love a spouse, if you love parents, often there are feelings that are, that are both, right? And the reason God says that, you know what, you must, you must not have any other God be, but me, for I am a jealous God, the reason that he can get provoked in his heart when he sees us worshiping idols is because on the one hand, he's displeased by the dishonor that's shown him. But on the other hand, he's a jealous God. Because jealousy means that, you know what, I love you. And I want you in my arms. I don't want you in the arms of that. <laughs> so God's first commandment to his people is, I am the Lord your God, and you must not have any other God but me. There was a, a well-known athlete who was at the top of his game. The sport was his world. He kind of lived for the sport. But he was forced to retire early because of injuries. And his body just wouldn't allow him to continue. And then when that happened, he said, if I don't, if I don't get God in here, <laughs> because all of that other stuff is gone, if I don't get God in here at the center of my being, I'm going to be in trouble. He was a Christian, but he was in the grip of an idol. An idol is a God. So can I ask you, can I ask you, what is your idol? Because the Bible reveals that we, are, our human hearts, are like an idol factory. We have this propensity, you and I, we have this propensity to, to take good things and turn them into ultimate things. We have this bent to take good things and make them supreme things. What's your idol? I'm asking myself the same question. I ask myself the very same thing. Anything in life can serve as your idol, can serve as my idol. And if there's nothing that immediately comes to mind for you, Perhaps ask yourself some questions like this. What, what, what do you imagine? Where does your imagination often take you? Where does it go? What do you enjoy daydreaming about? Where do your thoughts go when there's nothing else that actually is kind of grabbing your attention? What, what occupies your mind when there's nothing else clamoring for your attention, at least, at least in terms of playing something over and over in your mind or, or thinking about something time and time again or obsessing about it. 
What is that thing or things? Or ask yourself this, how, how do you spend your money? Because Jesus at once said, he says, where your treasure is, there it is that your heart is also. Money often flows towards your heart's greatest love. So asking yourself, asking myself, asking ourselves, those types of things might give you a clue in discerning what your idol might be or what your idol is. Asking yourself those kinds of questions. This week I planned on spending some time just in my quiet time with God and asking him, search my heart and see if there is anything that I am setting it on besides him. Whatever that might be for you, whether it's family or career or, or whatever it is, it's not that you, you have to love your family or your career or whatever it is. It's not that you have to love that less. It's just that you need to love God more. You, you, want, you want to love God, you want to love Jesus so much that your heart begins to relax its grip on anything else that it thinks that it needs. Because idols can exercise control in our lives. But that doesn't mean just going home and say, you know what, honey, you know what, from now on, I'm going to make God number one in my life. No, <laughs> no. You, you have to look at Jesus dying for you. you. You have to see Jesus dying for you. You, you need to have a sense of that. You need, to, you need to really reflect on that. You need to be grateful for that. You need to sit with that. You need, you need to rest in that because it's not until then that that happens that your heart actually will go out to God and raise your love Raise your love so that money just becomes money and people just become people. Yes, yes, they're wonderful people. Yes, yes, they're the greatest people. But they're just people. They're not saviors. Then you will be free. Then you'll be free. God, God wants first place in your heart because he knows that it's only he that can give you what you need. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for thank you for your love. Thank you. Huh, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience, Lord. And Lord, you you know us even better than we know ourselves. You know how our our hearts are kind of these things that can just sort of easily gravitate to this or that that maybe our culture is putting before us or whatever it happens to be that makes us think, you know what, if I just have that, well, then I'll be really happy. Then I'll, then I'll have meaning. Then, then I'll be secure. Then I'll have hope. But Lord, you know that all of these things that are really in the place of you, they they fail in the end. They don't deliver and promise what they say that they're going to promise, and it's only you. And so, Lord, I, I pray, Lord, I pray that you would, first of all, forgive us, but I pray that you would help each one of us, me included, about discerning what it is that 
might be our idol that we have actually set our heart on apart from you. And so, Lord, help us to just see the magnitude of what you have done for us. You've loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us. You were head over heels and in love with, with us that you want us to be free that you want us to be in unison with you for all, and it's only you that can give what only you can give. So, Lord, I pray, I pray for us in these even next days, just reflect, help us to discern what it is, and then to give them up and to turn to you and have you and your way in our being. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.